0: I'm excited to jump into our text this morning with you. It's Mark 14. Let's get after it, shall we? Mark chapter 14. And what we're seeing here is the beginning of of the hour. That's the word that Christ uses to describe this, this beginning of his end. In fact, it's recorded for us in Mark 31 as the time of his suffering. In fact, look with me at Mark 31, would you? It says here that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and so that's what's starting here it's the unfolding of that very intentional accurate prophecy the sufferings of Christ what I want to do this week is look specifically at the aspect of Jesus as our sufferer next week we'll come back we'll reconvene we'll see the aspect of Jesus as our substitute on Palm Sunday we'll see the aspect of Jesus as our savior and it's my prayer that you will treasure Jesus even more deeply and worship him with, with even greater joy and soul-stirring passion as a result of, of seeing Jesus in his hour of suffering. Now, as we think about Jesus as our sufferer, I find the text today to be an interesting, we'll call it a ping pong match, maybe a tennis match, uh, between betrayal betrayal and trial. And what you'll find that Mark does is, this is kind of an overview of the whole text, he bounces back and forth between betrayal and trial, betrayal and trial, in what I would say are four incidents, but they really cover two themes. And so this is what we're going to see in these initial hours, betrayal by his friends and trial by his enemies. It's going to serve us well to read these four scenes. It's a lengthy section, but I think it'll be uh, well worth it to let the weight of the text kind of press in on us and see how this flows all together, see the back and forth of it, and allow the biblical text to, to teach us, convict us, encourage us, and change us. So let's read together. Have your Bibles there, Lord willing. Let's read this lengthy portion beginning in Mark chapter 14, verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and once, and he said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and seized him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we know from other gospels, that's Peter. And Jesus then said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me then, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. A young man that followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. Well, they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And just as Peter is anonymously referred to in Mark's account. So many historians believe that this is Mark's anonymous reference to himself as the one who ran away naked. Well, verses 43 through about 52 reference the first incident, this first betrayal. We move now to the first mention of a trial. I'll pick it up, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself with the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying... We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And so the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, speaking of Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And in this, they felt as though he was claiming to be God and Messiah, and he was. He was clearly um, taking the, the ownership of being the Messiah So they called him as a blasphemer. It says they condemned him as deserving death. And so they began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. We now move to another of the betrayal moments. Not to the extent of Judas, but still yet a betrayal. Verse 66, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, this was again mentioned in verse 54, recall. She looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus, but he denied. That's the first time. Saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But he denied it. There's the second time. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. There's the third time. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. If you were to go back to chapter 14, verse 30, that's when Jesus prophesied this would happen. The Bible says that Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. It says here that Peter broke down and wept. Let's move to, this, to the last of the trial incidents. It's now morning, according to 15.1, and the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So here's the Roman trials taking place as opposed to the Jewish trials earlier. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. A rather lengthy section with these four incidents kind of revolving around two major themes, betrayal and trial. I think they show us that Jesus suffered in three particular ways. Let me lay those out for you. First of all, Jesus suffered relationally. Now, the relational suffering that we see in these scenes was from many people. In fact, the Bible records in verse 50 that all fled. But I think it's particularly highlighted in two people. The the kiss of death from Judas and the curse of denial from Peter. In verse 45, you see that Judas approaches Jesus and calls him rabbi and then kisses him. Isn't it interesting that he mentions a word of honor and and he does an action of love, and yet neither was in the heart of Judas. He calls him rabbi, but he didn't honor Jesus, and he kisses him, but he doesn't love Jesus. And the truth is the same type of things happen happened with Peter. Three times he says, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. But Peter actually did know him. You know, there's some some true relational trauma occurring within Jesus as all of his friends flee. On a wide spectrum, they betray him. They deny him. They desert him. It reminds me of the verses in Psalm 55, which I think these verses penned by David have a messianic tone to them. Look with me, in which David writes, It was not an enemy who taunts me, for then I could bear it, he says. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But look what he says. It is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my faithful friend, one I took sweet counsel with, had fellowship with. And this shows the, the real depth of the relational trauma and suffering that Jesus was was enduring as a full human man. Now, I think another intriguing note in this text is found in verse 49, in which the Bible says that uh, this was done so the Scriptures could be fulfilled. Maybe you're wondering, you know, what Scripture is that? I think the primary one in play here is Isaiah Isaiah 53. Listen very carefully, because Isaiah 53 is is really known as the passage which describes Jesus, the coming Christ, the Messiah, as the suffering servant. In fact, notice just verse 3 of chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men. Uh, Here's an uh, allusion to the betrayal. And of course, as the chapter unfolds, and we'll see more of this in the coming weeks, it is a depiction of Jesus Christ in His suffering, in His crucifixion, uh, in His beatings and tortures. And this prophecy written six to seven hundred years before Christ came, it's precisely filled in Him, in Jesus. I would just remind you, church, that truly, even in His darkest hours, Jesus is showing Himself to be the Son of God and the servant of man. You know, I find it quite intriguing that Jesus here is actually living out the deepest mark of friendship, love, and relationship. Do you recall what he told these very disciples? He said, greater love has no man than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's laying down his life, and yet what are they doing? They're betraying him. They're denying him. He receives great relational and emotional hurt from them, while he gives them incredible and intense love. They show their lack of love while he's displaying the greatest love. And my guess is that some of you here know that kind of hurt. You've been betrayed by friends. You've had your family deny you. Your pain and your hurt, your trauma is beyond words. Let me assure you, Jesus knows. He cares. He understands. And this first uh, scene uh, depicting his betrayal gives us real insight into how much Jesus really understands when we've been betrayed, denied, and, and, and forsaken. So let's be clear about this for sure in regards to Jesus' relational suffering. It was undeniable. It actually happened, and it was undeserved. Let me show you a second aspect of his suffering. Jesus suffered legally. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that he suffered in a way that was correct. What I mean is this. Jesus suffered through the legal means or via the legal avenues. In fact, it was anything but legal It was actually illegal and corrupt. And if you read verses 55 to 60, you'll find that the corruption is just uh, so um, uh, evident. I mean, they're looking for witnesses. They can't find any. All of them uh, appear to give stories that don't uh, match. All they can find are false witnesses. And so the corruption is, is very evident. And so from a legal aspect, Jesus endured a lot of injustice. In fact, these trials, there there were basically two arenas, a Jewish arena and a Roman arena. In each arena, there were three trials. And so it's correct to say that Jesus endured six mock trials. And so when I say he suffered legally, what I'm saying is this. There was injustice and illegal things that occurred, but it was done through a legal system, at least uh, on the surface. Multiple false witnesses, corrupt leaders, Wow, the the illegalities are just amazing. In fact, let me show you seven things that were illegal about Christ's trials. Most of these refer to how they broke the Jewish laws. One recurs to how they broke the Roman laws. But these seven things really point to the incredible illegal nature of what they were trying to appear to do in a legal fashion. Look with me. There was to be no trial during feast time, and yet that's exactly what they were in. Each member of the court was to vote individually, but Jesus was uh, crucified by acclamation of the crowd. A death penalty must have a one-night wait before the sentence was to be carried out, but Christ is crucified immediately. The Jews had no authority or jurisdiction to execute anyone, which is why he was sent to Pilate, and yet they still called for his execution. No trial was to be held at night, and this was under the cover of darkness, the accused was to have counsel or representation, and Jesus had none. And no self-incriminating questions were to be asked of the accused. And yet, this happened several times. Are you who they say you are? You add to this the fact that, that Pilate's, the, uh, Pilate was a coward. He delivered Jesus over to crucifixion after finding no fault in him. You can clearly begin to see what a travesty this night court was. Jesus suffered legally. He suffered much injustice. Now I suspect many of us probably know in varying degrees the frustration of being wrongly interpreted. More deeply, even wrongly accused or charged, mistreated. I think about our many African American and Native American brothers and sisters who for decades have endured injustice in a variety of ways, and for sure, often through legal avenues. You know, this sense of frustration, it heightens exponentially when you feel you have no recourse, no one to defend you. When when you know the facts aren't presented, or at least not all the facts, you feel like it's a one-sided indictment, the judge, jury, and executioner are all in cahoots together, If you've ever experienced those types of frustrating feelings, those types of injustices, hear me well. Jesus knows that experience a thousand times more deeply. Now, I don't say that to minimize your experience, but rather to maximize Jesus' ability to understand what you're going through. He cares. He knows. And we're seeing in these early moments of His hour that His suffering is showing him historically and divinely to be someone who can sympathize with us and our weaknesses. And so let's be clear about this aspect of Christ's suffering. His legal suffering was undeniable, it actually occurred, and it was undeserved. Let me show you a third aspect of his suffering, can I? It's the one that's most obvious to all of us. Jesus suffered physically. Now, as I said, this is the most obvious way that Jesus suffered. All the gospel writers talk in some manner about his physical torture, his abuse, all these things that Jesus endured, the crown of thorns, the the beatings. Mark mentions some specific things. For instance, verse 46, the Jewish guards physically torture Jesus. The Jewish leaders and others in verse 65 physically torture Jesus. And even the, Romans, the Roman guards in verse 65 and in chapter 15, verse 2, they receive him with blows, they seize him. And so, so many things are happening just in these initial moments that show us there's a physical nature to Christ suffering as well. You know, I think it's so ironic that the one who healed so many, the one who delivered people from demonic forces... Uh, other types of suffering, the one who restored people, he's now the one enduring suffering. Isn't that ironic? And so this is not hard to grasp. It's not hard to comprehend. It's very clear. And so let's be clear. In regards to Jesus' physical suffering, it was undeniable. It actually occurred, and it was undeserved. Now, we've been talking a good bit about things that are undeserved, unfair, I suspect that you're thinking of a place in your life, a time when you've known that feeling. And I want to say to you, Jesus knows what that is like. He knows the full feeling and deep emotion associated with a sense of undeserved treatment. And though he wasn't surprised by the suffering, remember, he knew it was coming. He he turned into it and faced it. I would say to you, he was still stung by it. There was real pain associated with his experience as a man. And yet in Christ's life, God was using every single bit of it. It was all part of his plan. Now, while we may be both surprised and stunned by things that create moments of of undeserved suffering for us, here's what's true. God knows about your situation as well, and he cares. And so wherever you're listening to this... Wherever you're watching this, whatever your age, your health, your station in life, hear these words, God knows and God cares. And He will use even the worst of things and the most difficult of times to bring about His plan. So trust in the Lord. He is in ultimate control. So let me review for us briefly where we've come today so far in this text. Three realizations about Christ's suffering, historical realities that we must embrace, things that actually happened to the God-man Jesus in time and space. He suffered relationally, he suffered legally, and he suffered uh, physically. And as I think of these three elements, as as I ponder them, like you, I, I end up with some very deep emotion and empathy. And it's this emotion and empathy that I think helps me see really the big idea begin to emerge. The, the real point of these scenes, these, this, the kind of tennis match back and forth. Here's what's, what's emerging for us. That Jesus was the servant who suffered wrongfully and yet endured faithfully. And that's our big idea today. Out of this lengthy text, we see in every situation, Jesus was the servant who suffered wrongfully and yet endured so faithfully. So so right there where you are, would you just ponder and, and pause for a moment and think of this, that the one who should not have suffered actually did. And again, we find this to be incredibly ironic, don't we? The only one who didn't fall away, the only one who was truly innocent, the the only one who remained truly faithful, the only one who didn't betray anyone, yeah, it's Jesus. Yet he was the one betrayed. He was the one wrongly convicted. He was the one tortured. He was the one wronged. He was the one who should not have suffered. And yet in every sense of the word, he did. What should you do with that realization? Well, if you recall, I commented when I began this message that I am praying this passage moves us to treasure Jesus more deeply, to love Him and worship Him more passionately with with soul-stirring fervor and zeal. Now, I say that because I think this is exactly what Christ's sufferings did for Peter. It's my prayer that they will do this for us. Now, recall with me, okay, Peter was there. He's watching this. He's a character. He's a player in Mark 14. He's seeing this unfold dramatically and personally. And so a few years later when he writes to fellow believers in the very first century, he wrote 1st and 2nd Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes these epistles. These epistles are addressed to believers who were scattered because of the persecution of Acts chapter 8. He's writing to them and Watch this. He uses Christ's sufferings as the basis for his appeal to these folks who are undergoing suffering. I think it's incredible how he, he appeals to Christ's life and Christ's suffering to encourage them not to turn back or grow timid or be weak. In fact, let me just share with you what he does in chapter 4, verse 1. Don't turn there, but watch this. 1 Peter 4, 1. He says, since we know Christ suffered, we should arm ourselves with the same mindset. So he speaks to Christians in general. And in fact, in chapter 5, he actually uh, targets pastors. And his whole admonition to pastors, to, uh, to pastor well and to pastor willingly, is based on the fact that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So to pastors, to, to Christians in general, Peter makes much of his appeal on the foundation that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And so what he does is he kind of brings us all into this fold. Now, remember, some of these readers that are reading his first epistle, they weren't part of this deal in Mark 14. They may have been aware of it. They they knew of it. But they weren't necessarily guilty, right? But that's actually not true because Peter, in in bringing us all into this fold, he actually brings us not only into the benefit of Christ's sufferings, but into the cause of it as well. And he does this in 1 Peter 3.18. I love this verse because it, it, I think it, it begins to show us really Christ's sufferings and the, the immense uh, scope of it. Look at this verse. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And so theologically and rightfully, Peter does something in his letter that takes the historical events of Christ's suffering and he makes them universal in scope and application. He says Christ's suffering, which, by the way, includes the time from, from the early moments up through his death. It says it was for sins, plural. Not just the, the one by a Jewish leader or a Roman leader or those who nailed the nails, but he's, he's got this wide scope now. He says it's the righteous for the unrighteous. And Jesus here's the righteous one who didn't deserve any of this and yet received it, we're the unrighteous ones who should have received it but didn't. In other words, catch this, church. It, what happened in Mark 14 was, was more than a, a momentary blip on the calendar of Jerusalem because of a few bad Jewish leaders and some corrupt Roman rulers. Man, it wasn't just their sin in that moment. It was sins. Yes, theirs, but also Ours. And we, along with Peter and them, with us, we are the unrighteous. And Jesus' suffering was actually the God-ordained time in which Jesus, once and for all, stepped in for sinners, in spite of us very sinners, to secure us to God. And this is what's beginning in Mark 14. Jesus becoming the suffering servant for sinners. This is why we should expand our big idea by at least five words. Jesus was the servant who suffered wrongfully because of us, yet endured faithfully for us. Ah, here's the gospel again this week, church. Celebrate it with me, would you? Here's the great exchange that the one who didn't deserve what he received willingly endured it so that we who don't deserve what we do receive thoroughly enjoy it. This is what took place in the moments of Christ's suffering in those hours beginning with his betrayal and going all the way to the cross. Jesus Christ is the suffering servant. And if you this morning, wherever you're listening from or watching from, if you've never traded your sorrows for the joy of Jesus if you've never repented of your sin and received the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus, I would plead with you and urge you, trust Jesus. You say, Todd, I've got deep hurt. I've got deep wounds. I've got immense sorrow. So did Jesus. And Jesus suffered for you. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. And to all who repent of their sin and cast their cares upon Jesus, believe that He died, was buried, and rose again. All who call upon His name alone for salvation, God will save them. In this time of our nation's unrest, uncertainty, when anxiety is rising and fear is crippling, I want to call everyone's attention to the name of Christ, who knows what it's like to suffer, And went to the cross to suffer for us so that when we stand before God one day, we will not suffer His wrath. Oh, there may be minimal suffering here like we're in now. There may be some present tense moments in which we are mistreated. But those who believe in Christ will not experience suffering from God one day. Oh, I would encourage you. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who suffered for You you see, now it's no longer just historical. It's not just a Mark 14 passage and what happened then, and it, it never affects us. It's now personal. It's current. It's present tense. And we stand in the waves of this oceanic text that crashes against the, the shore of our life with relentless and beautiful steadiness that Jesus suffered for us. Church, are you hearing this? Jesus suffered for you. Jesus suffered for you. And on the shore of our life, when when you never know what's going to happen, here's the steady tide day in and day out. Jesus suffered for you. Jesus suffered for you. His sacrificial servanthood, wow, it really fuels us, it provides our motivation. Oh, what soul stirring truth Mark 14 has. What heart pounding doctrine. What knee bending love. What life changing sacrifice is seen here that Jesus is our sufferer. No wonder they would write this song Man of Sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed. The sin of man and the wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. But when you know that, you break out in this refrain. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. It's my prayer this morning that you'll see the suffering servant Yes, of Isaiah 53, now fleshed out in Mark 14, that you'll worship him, love him, and treasure him more deeply than ever before. Could I ask you to pray with me for a few moments? Right there in your living room or kitchen, maybe your bedroom, would you take a moment? and just ponder the suffering scenes that we've analyzed? The moments of Christ's life as it draws to an earthly end. And will you realize He did this for you? As you're pondering this, thinking this over, I've asked our worship team just to sing that part of this song called Man of Sorrows. In fact, I want them to sing this over you. So wherever you are, maybe with your group, your family, individually, just will you let this song pour over you as you ponder the sufferings of Jesus Will you pray that God would increase the passion of your soul. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.